Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Yeah, yeah, let's uh let's 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 talk about a bunch of calming and centering stuff today. We're going to talk about uh, uh repressed uh homosexual energy. We're going to talk about nuclear war. We're going to talk about divorce. Uh we're we're going to talk about just just unrelenting human suffering. It's going to be a very relaxing day. Yeah, it's going to be Vanguard. It's going to be beautiful and sad and incredibly horrible and i hope you are all as excited as i am <laughs> who's who's ready for some interpretive dance in the subway you know that's nice yeah, it's it's community theater <laughs> uh who who is ready to steal a banana from the grocery shopping of discourse <laughs> and use it to like drag on our filmic analysis I mean, who who hasn't had amazing breakup tentacle from a slimy snake monster that was so good you just had to go dance in the subway and throw a bunch of milk around? I mean, this happens to everyone. Uh, absolutely, we've we've all whom 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 among us could not relate? Um, hello, everybody. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get cucked by a snake demon that's actually a manifestation of the self. Yeah. And then 10 years later, you go on to star in Jurassic Park. It's just how life works. <laughs> um, yeah. Hello, everybody. We're, we're, <laughs> it's your horror vanguard for the week. We are talking. Um, we're, we're, honestly, we're talking about uh, a, a film which, which in, in shocking news to pretty much everyone, I, I have not seen before watching it for this episode. Um, we are talking about the 1981 film Possession. Uh kind of a cult classic in some ways but uh something that is is i think um clearly not as well known as it should be um and and i am i am beside myself with excitement at getting to ask ash to explain what possession is actually about In 1971, Black Sabbath released their anti-nuclear weapon anthem, Children of the Grave. The lyrics lament the looming horror of nuclear annihilation while calling on the listener to be brave in the fight against nuclear arms. As the song notes, either love will win or we are all merely children of the grave. Ever since the advent of the atomic bomb, all generations born to this earth have lived a half-life. We are the first peoples of this earth to live without the certainty that, if a handful of people in charge ever made the wrong decision, everyone everywhere dies. The threat of nuclear weapons is forgotten, not gone. While the imminent threat of nuclear apocalypse has been sublimated into the retro-futurist nostalgia of games like Bethesda's Fallout, there are still around 14,000 nuclear warheads on earth today. In 1961, a B-52 bomber flying over the United States experienced a catastrophic fuel leak. Only five of the eight pilots managed to parachute to safety before the crash. Two nuclear warheads aboard the plane were released, and one with its arming sequence activated. 
The only reason South Carolina wasn't accidentally nuked by our own Air Force was a single low-voltage safety switch that managed to stay on. Three of the other safety switches had failed. On 26 of September 1983, Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces, detected a nuclear first strike from the United States. The Soviet early warning system identified a lone intercontinental ballistic missile that was headed straight for Moscow. Petrov quickly reasoned that if America was committed to a nuclear first strike against the USSR, they would have fired more than just a single missile. Petrov decided that this alert was a false alarm and did not alert his superiors. The only reason we did not plunge into nuclear World War III on September 26, 18, 1983, is because a cool-headed Soviet lieutenant colonel let reason prevail. On the night of February the 3rd, 2009, a British submarine, HMS Vanguard, collided with the French Navy's Le Triomphant. Both ships were armed with nuclear ballistic missiles. The HMS Vanguard took damage to its outer casing near the missile compartment. The collision wound up being relatively minor and no crew were injured. The only reason two nuclear reactors and a complement of nuclear missiles didn't spill out into the sea is nothing short of luck. There is no denying that since that moment, the shadow of the atom bomb has been across all our lives. All men of goodwill earnestly hope that a realistic control of atomic weapons can and will be achieved. Meanwhile, good sense requires that all of us prepare for any eventuality. On the 25th of May, 1981, Andrzej Zulowski premiered Possession at the Cannes Film Festival in France. The climax of the film depicts Bob, the son of Anna and Mark, face down in a bathtub, hiding from sounds of sirens and explosions outside his door. Amidst their very real struggles, Anna and Mark leave Bob's fate up to one of the few working societal fail-safes, the better judgment of a stranger and sheer luck. Dear listeners, please don't take this as an argument that the parents should stay together for the kids. However, to live is to bring life into this world, and that is something we must answer for. As people, as societies, we have a responsibility to history, to the dead that once lived, and to the dead that we shall become. Bob, like ourselves, lives in the shadow of older hearts that have failed to lift responsibility's weight. Are we to become yet another doppelganger? Yet another new face on the same inaction? Duck and cover if you must. But history comes for us all as we discuss possession. Now children should have lots of vitamin A and calcium, but they shouldn't have any strontium-90 or cesium-137. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, <laughs> let, let let us begin then. Let us begin as we always must by traversing the wasteland that is the, the formalism, formalism zone. So, where would you like to start in um, today's? formal possession i i would like to start with with talking about how this film fucked me up (laughs) (laughs) um you know we kind of we we joke we've joked about it repeatedly on the show there are there are there is there is horror cinema with ash vibes there is horror horror cinema with john vibes i had i'd Mm -hmm, never mm -hmm. seen this i'd never seen this before before watching it for this uh recording and it is like this is if you wanted to design the platonic ideal of like 
what 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 do what do John vibes look like as a horror movie? This would be it. Um, it is it is so good. The uh, the central performances are just in. And I know we we don't normally kind of like spend a lot of time talking about acting performances because you know that's not really what we're here for. But like, can we just take a second to acknowledge how incredible the acting is in this? I, I, Isabella Ajani and like of all people on this earth, Sam Neill, <laughs> a, a early career Sam Neill, are just powerful on screen here they they do their roles with such commitment like and isabella johnny respect to the gravitas just an like an absolute like inset someone who just turns themselves inside out for you on screen like the emotional the emotional kind of like energy like this is a person who's like clearly just kind of constantly teetering on the bridge of on the brink of like uh, utter uh, hysteria, and it's like it's not it's not a surprise that Johnny said that it took years to recover from doing this. Like took took uh, took her to an incredibly dark place. The director even cons- even confirmed um, after the fact that like it not responsible, but like um, she was suicidal after after uh, filming this. Sam Neill even said that he he thought it was a miracle that he escaped with his sanity intact. And yeah. it's like, uh, you know, every every other film that, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to show you the harsh emotional truths. It's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't even, does not even come close to this. I And I think like, like, like this got me thinking of, I think this is a Bertolt Brecht quote, but it's, it's something of uh, along the lines of art isn't a mirror that you hold up to reality. It's a hammer that you use to shape it. Mm-hmm. And like this, this film is that act of hammering reality. Like, there's no way to watch this movie that doesn't, in some way, forcibly reshape you, the viewer. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I feel, I feel like a different person um, because you go, you go through something. It is like, uh, it's, 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 it's purging. It's a purging experience. You lose something having watched this. I think. Yeah, this is like, I mean, you know, horror, it's an intense genre and a lot of these uh, kinds of things will happen here. But like, I, I, I didn't, wa- watching Possession is kind of unlike so many, like, I think the some of the closest I've gotten to feeling what I felt during Possession was the act of killing. Yeah. yeah which yeah. I think yeah. c- kind of illustrates the level we're at with Possession. Like, you know, I've seen Antichrist, you know, whatever, the, the yawn. You, you know, Begotten. Begotten's an amazing movie, but like no psychic damage dealt. Possession, on on the other hand, is just so raw. Uh, no, it's a, it's enormously raw. It's enormously raw. It's so intense, and it's diff- very difficult to get hold of because when it was first released, it was put on the uh, infamous list of video nasties here in the UK. Um, you can't fight. You, I yes. don't. Th- I don't think you can stream it here in the UK either. Um, it's one of these ah. films that's that's kind of gotten lost in the great copyright wars. And like, if I'm if I'm going to make one formal point, uh, it would be this, which is like buy physical media. <laughs> like, yes, like, like buy mm-hmm. physical media because I would not have I would not have seen it without doing so. The the uh, 4K um, Blu-ray um, restoration of the film is 
just stunning. The film looks incredible. Um, but like by physical media, that's 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 an important formal point about how we get to engage with cinema that is no longer immediately commercially viable. Oh, a- absolutely too. And like so so I got um an Australian Blu-ray copy of this from some Australian uh company. And it came with multiple different cuts of the film, a director's commentary, interviews with actors, like tons of behind the scenes, a making of featurette. Like it was just packed with stuff. And like there, there, there is so much to, to kind of find in those like extra features, right? Like all of that additional context and information and ways of approaching cinema and kind of like. I just like always think it's it's so vital to strip cinema back down and realize that there are like while you're watching the shredding scene like there's just like there's like 30 people currently doing their job you know like like that's literally work for them it's really helpful to to situate the kind of things that work and labor is able to accomplish yeah right to to take labor conceptually beyond just like riveting together steel beams in the 1920s and to realize that labor is also artistic and emotional and very deeply alive and complex yeah and the physical media is something that like in a way in a way we become we become we become people who are forced to rent our own imaginations back to ourselves yes right Mm -hmm. that's what streaming services are they streaming services are rentier uh, capitalists who finance back to ourselves the dreams, visions, and imagination of our cultural history, right? And so, th- the the solution I think is is to insist upon physical media as a necessity, um, as a as a absolutely yeah. You know, you you deserve to own it. You deserve to own it. And if if you are gonna, like, I'm very I'm incredibly glad that I bought it. I'm incredibly glad that I bought it. Yep. Um, and I, you- I think um. Oh, just, just, just a, like, like, I think there's one of the most important things for me about physical media is that like, you know, or owning digital copies, wink, wink, um, <laughs> it's going to, which, which also I, as I've argued before on the show is still physical media. Yeah. You, you own, you own the hard drive. You own a physical piece of media that, that contains the thing that you can watch. You do not. Ownership is not about files and lines of code. Ownership is about the physical media that can be held and transported. We are there is no such thing as digital media. There is only physical media that you either own or lease. Um, stamp. But I would also say that when you one, you're not beholden. Like if you know, like the, if a streaming service decides to pull possession or like gets bought out by another company, deletes most of its content, whatever. You're not you're not beholden to them. You can still invite all your friends over to watch a movie. You can you can give it out to somebody to have them watch it. Right? There's there's an added layer of community that comes with owning the physical media. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and like for the record, again, the film the film looks and sounds incredible. It like what what do you think what do you think about the cinematography and the kind of soundscape of the school? <clears throat> so I love like like the score is so visceral, y- you know, like like it's it's almost like it's like the sonic assault that that that's happening. It's so hard to place, and it's so hard to like. It's perfectly antagonistic in the scenes where it needs to be, and I think it like 
you know, it, one of the things in movies that it, it's just like idiosyncratically interesting for me is what sounds the filmmakers choose to allow into the space of the uh, of the piece of cinema and what sounds they don't. Right. You know, like very, very rarely are you just getting like raw audio of whatever is happening. You know, like you've got Foley artists coming back in and adding sound. You, you've got layers of decisions being made. And and in this movie, there is like so much. There's a lot of like mon- mundane sounds that, that are just constantly appearing and like, but what's going on in, in the screen is like so horrifying and like. I think that adds another layer of reality. Like when I think back to the most difficult times of my life and the hardest moments, there's always like, you know, like there's a microwave beeping in the background, right? There's a voice on an intercom. There's the sound of a door opening. You know, there, there's all this mundanity that necessarily undergirds the, the most shredding horror anyone could face. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the same is true of the cinematography, right? The cinematography, which for a lot of this is filmed very naturalistically. Um, yep. Switching into, like, I think the use of close-ups in this film is just beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the the way the camera moves in the course of, like, arguments makes everything feel so much more kind of... Like, the, the way that I kind of think about it is, like, so many of the argument scenes, especially in the first half of the film, are so feels so real it almost feels like you shouldn't be watching it right it's oh yeah Mm if it feels almost almost kind of like too too emotionally involving and so much of that is done through the cinematography through through how the camera moves through the space yeah absolutely i i could not agree more there's there's a almost like documentary quality to the filmmaking to to the cinematography in possession and I think that that you're absolutely right. That adds that that lets the acting that lets the like the emotional wavelength of this film just really blast through. Yeah. So that by the time you get to the the stuff which is uh, maybe a bit more you know on paper diff- more difficult to accept, like you're completely you're completely on board. You're completely on board mm-hmm. with it when you know you go to the abandoned rundown apartment and find the like gooey squid monster. Like it. It doesn't seem it. It feels like a completely natural evolution, a, a natural intensification of the things which were always already present at the very beginning of this. Yeah, and and, and the choice of like framing for shots once we get to the 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 gooey squid monster, um, I, I think is really interesting because then then the camera work starts to break from this kind of like like almost a cinema verite approach to to something a bit more abstract a bit more artistic like and it's 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 very much letting us into like the the delineation between spaces here the breakdown between the this kind of like segregated mental plane of intense emotion and a an actively crumbling reality around it uh yeah yeah um and of course speaking of the the incredible uh squid monster we should probably uh talk about how uh this film is connected to et <laughs> so okay okay i don't know what you're talking about i saw you write this in the notes <laughs> and i was like i could i could look this up but i'd rather just be hit by a truck okay so 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 hit me so okay i i need to i need to uh i need to make sure i get the guy's name 
please please do because i have no clue i cannot think of a single way in which spielberg's et the extraterrestrial at all relates to 1984's possession <laughs> uh it just sounds like something i would have written for the precy like <laughs> <laughs> the creature design um was done by carlo antonio rambaldi uh Famous Italian special effects artist, winner of three Oscars, uh, one for the 1976 version of King Kong. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he was also behind the animatronic movements of the uh, the Xenomorph in Alien, um, and he was also he was also responsible for the movements of ET, the extraterrestrial. Oh, Carlo, Carlo, oh, Carlo, Carlo Rambaldi designed designed ET, and and the the thing the thing that's mind blowing is that ET was the next film that he worked on after working on Possession. I so I, I know like so did you see ET as a kid? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I, I know this. This is a common reaction that I've heard from a lot of people, and I myself experienced this. But ET kind of creeped me out, yeah. like the alien itself. Yeah. And and now I'm like, oh, that's why. That's why it creeped me out because when you're making your like four kids alien adventure movie, you you hire like a a, a legend of disgusting body horror and, and alien monstrosity and slime you hire a man who who crafts demons from nightmares like. so so my favorite detail about Carlo Rambaldi um is that he was one mm-hmm. of the I think he was the first ever special effects artist to be legally required to prove that his work was not real oh what was this for so in the there is a there's an infamous um dog mutilation scene in A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, the 1971 mm-hmm. uh, Fulci movie. Yeah. Um, and Fulci was brought up on charges of animal mutilation because it was so convincing. And Rambaldi mm-hmm. had to prove to the courts by providing props that they hadn't actually done this to a real animal. And this and this is the, this is your number one pick when you're making your kids alien movie. This is when you when you when you put together your short list. You you want the guy who once had to prove that he didn't actually kill a dog because his terror is so believable. Like uh, as 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 a run as an as a run, how is this possession? Nineteen eighty one, E. T. The extraterrestrial, nineteen eighty two, Conan the Destroyer, and June both in ah. ni- both in nineteen eighty four. I mean, come on, <laughs> just just power. I mean, the Oscars earned. Like, damn. I, I mean, I, I don't know, and I think like ET ET situates itself so nicely in the context of Possession too, because what is ET if not Possession but a kids movie? Yeah, like like Absolutely. it literally works so well. Absolutely, you you have the government espionage. You you have you know like these kind of like bodily changes. You've you've got weird ways of knowing people. It's it's just it's just missing being set in East and West Germany. Um. Are there any other formal points you'd like to make before we before we move into our discourse? Honestly, honestly, after that, I don't know if I can make another point about this film. <laughs> well, let us let's let's start with a kind of straightforward 
question. Um, in what 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 is love? <laughs> is, is it, <laughs> I mean, I okay. So, one of the things that I I really like about horror movies and find weirdly kind of reassuring in a strange way is that horror film as a mode of storytelling tends to be enormously honest about the capabilities of human beings. Um, there is no sort of liberal perfectibility to humans, uh, to people, yeah. people in horror films are capable of the most kind of astonishing cruelty, the most astonishing mm-hmm. kind of violence, uh, the most kind of like, uh, vicious like pain inflicted on one another but uh horror is this kind of form which looks at it very honestly and and recognizes that like the the thing that truly scares us the thing that truly uh inspires fear is not that there is a kind of monster outside the door the point is that the true truly terrifying thing is that you don't even know yourself you you are actually Mm -hmm. the monster outside the door um you are the thing that children run away from and tell stories to one another in the night like that's that's why horror is so fascinating because we look into like the films don't show us things which are impossible they show us things which are terrifyingly close to home and i don't think i've seen a film in a very long time as good at doing that as this film i could not agree more with with this approach and i think it's so important for horror to constantly investigate the space of the collapse of love, right? Or I guess the the excessive love that might be happening in here, the the kind of malformed love that we see in possession. Um, and I think like it, it contrasts really well with like we we've kind of have like we've adopted a very like 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 the the neoliberal panopticon that is contemporary therapy. We've adopted those languages and frameworks for discussing romance. And, and romance has gone from, I think like part, part of this is a, a subtle transformation from something that like has the potential to become one of the most horrific and, and painful things to, to something that is medicalized and slowed down and contained and sedate. And I think that that's, I think one of the reasons why possession still hits so hard is it's 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 running it's running counter to that. I mean, no one wins in possession. No one's no. good here. You know, Al, uh, Alan Badia talks about this idea of like love without risk, mm-hmm. love without risk. Yes, and I I I sort of I find I find Badia sort of like super uh, endearing in that he like constantly professes himself to be a romantic, like in in a, in, in the very mm-hmm. tr- in the traditional straightforward sense of the word. And I really I really like that. I like to think of myself as a romantic, uh, and this idea that actually. Uh, love sometimes like falling in love or being in love or that uh, it can be the very worst thing in the world right this idea that mm-hmm. like your existence can just get blown apart uh by the presence of another person um and often that that can be a, a kind of beautiful thing because it allows uh allows you know badu says this in in one of his books like that there's a kind of infinity that you find in your interrelationship with others like something that kind of stretches yeah. stretches out beyond yourself but that infinity can also turn into a kind of like terrifying abyss of negation and that's what this is that's what this is between uh, mm-hmm. between these two between uh, mark and anna absolutely right and i think like so in in 
Badiou's In Praise of Love, which is a phenomenal book that we bring up a lot on this show. <laughs> Put that in the HV Lending Library along with like Men, Women, and Chainsaws and uh, like all of Silvia Federici's work. Um, but, but I think like something in this movie that I find to be really interesting too is that like, so Sam Neill's character is, is falling apart largely because of his job, right? He's some kind of spy split between East and West Germany, split between, you know, you know, like wet Western forces and the USSR. He's, he, he is a site of immense internal and geopolitical struggle and that's breaking him. Yeah. Like one of the very, like, one of the very first things Anna says, asks him was like, were you unfaithful? And he says, yep. not really. Yes. And he, yes. And I think, <laughs> oh, go on, go on. It's, it's just like at the very beginning, right? He's, he's, he's kind of fracturing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is so important for kind of the broader context of love in possession, right? Because Bodies in Praise of Love is very much about like, like what, what does it mean to love from like a communist perspective? from an anti-capitalist perspective like like how how does love intersect with the horrible world we find ourselves in and we see that in mark and anna's love like it's impossible for mark to navigate this situation well because of what the society he lives in has made him right like like there is no way to do the things he does in this world right like it's intimated that he is up to some horrible stuff and so we we already have kind of this human shrapnel in collision before the film even starts. Yeah, it's like this is a question that Anna like asks at one point, right? What does it mean to be free? Like, do you yep. do you even know? Free isn't isn't freedom the ultimate? That's the, that's the evil for you, right? That's that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So what is it about? You know, the opposite. What would that be? So should we talk about? Divorce horror movies. Yes, uh, because this is the only good one. (laughs) (laughs) Shots shots fired to every other guy who made a horror film as a piece of breakup text. Actually, those those usually do not work out. I'm being a little unfair. I also think um, I also think The Brood is excellent. Oh, the yeah, The Brood is phenomenally good. Like some big overlaps, I think, between that one and this one. Um, Yes. I, and if if I would if I would put forward the thing that I think connects them is that they're both films that are very okay with how vulnerable that position the, the kind of shattering of love puts you in. They're I think they're less trying to come down with some hard and fast dogmatisms and instead are like expressing a great pain. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, like that's that that's part of the horrible thing about love is that love is is necessarily a gamble on our own finitude right no matter yes like mm-hmm. you might find a, a relationships which you think will last forever but it's like you run into your own limits eventually the love mm-hmm. lo- love's kind of like only surety is that one day uh, mostly uh through through human frailty it, it always ends right and so there's always yeah. there's always a kind of like huge well of pain in it and like the pain is is uh and that that gets turned inwardly here. So with uh, Mark and mm-hmm. Anna, like the the early arguments are like so vicious, yeah, uh, and and like so emotionally fraught 
and you kind of like from that go i wonder what it was like when they first met because <laughs> mm-hmm. you you see you're seeing the kind of like inverse of uh what maybe brought them together in the first place oh I, I, absolutely yeah it's it's such a stark horrific and like i think it's it would be a little reductive to 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 use kind of contemporary bad dating parlance to discuss their relationship they are both just threadbare emotionally just just live wires entirely shredded just colliding with each other over and over again well i think and and because of oh i was just gonna say because of how their world is structured they they cannot get away from each other they they cannot stop these repeated collisions i was i was just gonna say that i think you your point is completely correct and shows the extent to which contemporary discourse around romance or relationships or, or and this the concept of like oh who is to blame is so kind of impoverished yeah. the way that we talk about yes the way that we talk about human relationships generally uh, in kind of modern parlance is so impoverished and is so kind of cli- mm-hmm. cli- made into this kind of clinical or psychopathologized language yes which is designed to protect us, right? It's designed to kind of mitigate, but actually ends up like hollowing out a lot of the way we try and deal with kind of like the emotional bruising of just being a subject in the world. Like neither of them come off well, yeah. well in this film, right? And yes, the director yeah. is, is very clearly going through a divorce, but like it's <laughs> it's immensely reductive to, to look at this and be like, oh, he's just making a story about how his ex-wife was crazy, it's like, mm-hmm. like Mark. Mark comes off in some ways far worse. Worse, far, way, like, way, like Mark, way worse. Mark is an absolute piece of shit in this movie. Like, uh, to 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 an earlier thing that I said, like like Johnny's character characters plural, I guess, like just just radiating with massive damage, right? You're just just sweating a kind of psychic pain and and i think mark is as well but he's also like doing spy shit for capitalism right like and when when whenever anna calls him out or like it's always so spot on you know it's it's not like like her, her critiques and again like you know the the director of this film was also making like a meta text about the position of poland yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, during the fall of the USSR. Yeah. <laughs> but like whenever Anna's calling out Mark, it is so vicious and clear that like we, whatever we can say about their relationship, the evil stems from the work being done by Mark to the world broadly. Yeah, there's so many like cutaway shots of like Mark and then we cut to like soldiers at a checkpoint. Yeah. Or like soldiers mm-hmm. seen at a distance. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you know, like the one of the very first fights they have is like Anna leaves in the middle of the night, and he goes, "Where?" Do, and he's furious. He's like, "Where did you go?" I will find out. So yeah, you're mm-hmm. a sp- yeah, because you're a spy. You're a spy. Yeah, <laughs> of course. That's what you and do. Like, and and I mean, like, not to not to try and reduce the movie to like a very simple geopolitical reading, but like. You, but part part of the, the the kind of like what we were talking about earlier, right? And like this is a very body point, but like one of the spoopiest things about love is that the, the the more the more that that sensation grows, the more that that bond is nourished, the more that the kind of self other distinction dissolves, 
the more the more a a very positive potentially interdependency develops the more you become one with someone who you you know barring barring being late on a bus to to a date or something you might never have connected with yeah and i i think that overlays so perfectly on it on berlin divided like we we have two people that you know by by rights should be able to be together and commune with each other and connect but they have this like violent schism that bars their entry into each other any further from this point and now they're like like i i always think about the scene where they they start cutting themselves and cutting each other yeah and like like they're they're literally ripping at each other's bodies they're they're, they're so hungry to be inside of each other again on a very emotional level that all they can do is just bleed. But it's like this is this raises the the kind of paradox, right? That this is where the horror comes in, which is like you try and hold on to something. The the harder you squeeze, the more it slips through your fingers. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You 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 know, you can plunge your you can plunge your hand into the chest of the person that you love and tear up their heart to try and hold on to it and it'll just mm-hmm. slip out of your hands. It'll run, you know, the meat will kind of squirt through your fingers. And it's like Yes. yes, that's that's exactly what happens here, and right, it's not, and it's not simply because we, 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 we can't know someone. We can, and that's the kind of very beautiful thing about uh, love as a human capacity. The the kind of frightening thing is that like what we can't know is fully know ourselves. There is this is a this is a great film for talking about the kind of this concept of the of the barred subject. Right, yes. that that, oh, yeah. that feeling of like, why did I say that? <laughs> like, we've all had that moment, yep. like, where in the kind of like in the heat of in the heat of an argument, something kind of clicks within you for a second, and you open your mouth, and it's like something else talks out of you, you know? Yes, and you absolutely. I don't. You go. I don't know why I did that, right? And so many of the arguments in this are like there are moments for both of them where you see them say something or do something mm-hmm. where you go. It's not it's not that the other person doesn't understand you it's that you don't understand you can't understand this very kind yes. of like inner inner part of oneself. And I, I think like there's something syndicalistic about love, right? Like like love is an anarchy. And it, it, there's a there's a quality of free association here, right? Like you cannot imprison someone in your love. You know, they they have to willingly be there, right? Otherwise that's a level of access to the other that you just cannot have. And again, to pull this back on a societal level, like, like Mark is doing gladio shit. Like that is his, that that is his day job is to wake up in the morning and go, how can I make people want to kill each other more often? You know, he is, he is doing the most diabolical things imaginable and there, 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 there can be no freely chosen connections there, right? Like they're, they're weaving a system where it's, it's by economic necessity that these people stay together. It's, it's, it's by the social strictures, right? Yeah. In this kind of, in this kind of politics, can there be any freedom? No. In this kind of like sexual patriarchy, can there be any freedom? No. So we, we've been, we've been hinting about this a a little bit. How do you, how do you feel about the cold war, John? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, I think you've put it really well. You know, this is, this is a character who's doing like stay behind ops. Yep. Um, this is like espionage is about paranoia, right? The the aim of espionage yeah. is not necessarily about gathering information. The the but that that can be a successful byproduct of it. But the aim is about paranoia. It's about the idea of uh, the erosion of trust, 
right? If you if somebody says, well, there's a spy in your organization, who do you trust? Like, it's like, uh, and you go, well, there's a spy in your house. No wonder, no wonder Anna doesn't trust Mark. How can she? <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. he's, a, he's a spy. And a spy, the spy is definitionally a liar. Right? That's that, Absolutely. That's, that's the only... So, and the, the, whole, the whole... Trust depends upon both kind of freely, freely given assent to the other and a free willingness mm-hmm. to let the other be as they are. Right, that's yeah. that. That's what it depends upon. But if in an environment of this kind of paranoia, how can there be any trust? Exactly, right? Like, I think him being a spy is arguably the most single most important thing in the movie, barring having sex with a slimy snake slug man. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which naturally, naturally, right? Like, that's that's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The thing at the very top of the pyramid is a slimy slug snake man. <laughs> um. The, the base of the pyramid is Isabella Johnny, and the top of the pyramid is, is the Snake Man. I mean that 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 <laughs> describes. I think that describes me quite well. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I, I think like the, 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 there's something about the, the the quality of espionage here that, that that's so interesting, right? Because like we have some very disturbing questions to ask, including is Mark's home relationship the real Mark? Or is the real Mark the one that is out there doing stay behind espionage, right? Like, how does how does he view the core of himself materially? Which one has more sway over the decisions made by Mark? This is literally spies. Spies are the bard subject incarnate to be so many multiple lives and to, and to at some point have to reconcile which one is the core, if that's even possible. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the is, terrifying thing that there is no core? That there yes. is no there is no there is no contradiction that has to be resolved. Yep. Right? Isn't that one? This, of, isn't that one of the first things that Anna says, which is like, "I don't, I don't know you." Yes, yes, yes. And this is this is, I think, part of the condition under capital, right? Because spies are a maximal expression of this, but we are all kind of made to do this. You know, like like the you at work is not the you at home, and it's hopefully not as extreme as what Mark has to do to bifurcate his own internality. But, like, we all live that. You know, we are all in some way made to make parts of ourselves secret. You know, and that that I think engenders, like, there, there's a very, like, neoliberal quality of, ooh, what is the word I'm looking for? Mistrust and deception and secrecy and, like, the internalized spy that is the modern, like, dating scene, I think, is is alive and well all the way back to possession. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think sometimes there's, there's something kind of quite beautiful, I think, in, this happens sometimes if you've been, if you've been with the person for a very long time or if you've been friends with them for a very long time, you'll have moments when you realize not how much you know about them, but how little you know about them. Yes. And that would mm-hmm. be a kind of beautiful thing when you realize that like this, this person who is just as much a kind of discrete, fragile, contingent object as yourself actually contains all of this kind of rich, multitudinous capacity that you had no idea mm-hmm. about. And that will be a kind yeah. of like, that'll be a kind of like wonderful, kind of giddy, vertiginous moment of like genuine uh, kind of amazement. But like here, the realization that you don't know know the other person becomes a point of resentment because you're supposed to know them, right? Mm-hmm. But they're spies you 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 one is a spy the other is kind of 
trapped. Yeah. Oh, ab ab absolutely. Like, I couldn't agree more. That was very beautifully said. Very beautifully said. Should we should we move on uh, to our our section labeled "Gay for Kant"? <laughs> let's let's talk about the let's talk about hot Heidrich. <laughs> <laughs> so so something really interesting is I mean a lot of really interesting things are going on in this movie through, through the course of this movie uh, the slimy snake slug man that Isabella Johnny's character uh, has has been having extramarital affairs with. Uh, turns into her husband, turns back into Mark, right? Like becomes a new version of him, right? And like the the a lot of the anxieties in this movie are split between uh, Mark's and um, Anna's and Helen's, right? Like Isabella Johnny plays both Anna and Helen. She she plays two characters. Semniel plays Mark and Demon Snake Man Mark. Um, so there's the the split identity, the the fractured subject is is all over this film. But one of the things that I, I think is really really interesting about what's going on here is that like one of one of Sam Neill's biggest problems is that he's kind of being cucked by the Snake Man. Like uh, and yeah, yeah, he even he he expresses this in the film, like you know, like they're both concerned with he with being cheated on by the other. And and they both have you know attitudes about when and where and how that would be acceptable. And Snake Man does not make the cut. And what I find to be really interesting is like this is classic, classic Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. This is classic homosocial triangle. Yeah. Except for there, there's a there's a unique pivot here, and that's from Mark. The homosocial triangle is internalized. Yeah. So this is this is reflected in the character of Heinrich. Heinrich is. Uh, the figure that's identified as Anna's lover. Um, yeah. There's, there's this, yes. there's this incredible scene. This scene is... Um, this scene I love is, that. Oh my God, I know what you're going to say. The scene is amazing, which is where... Pop off. The, the scene, scene rules. Where, where Mark, who is basically vibrating with rage, go, yep. goes to Heinrich's apartment. Heinrich lives in this beautiful uh, West Berlin apartment um, with his, his elderly mother. And mm -hmm. Heinrich is this kind of loquacious, philosophically minded uh, German who um, says that, you know, we don't we don't have to be unpleasant to one another. Right. The whole point is that you just have to you ha you have to accept what's going on. Um, yeah. You have to finally stop trying to control and, and surveil and manipulate this person that you're supposed to love. Um, and. <laughs> Uh, and Mark then then swings for him and gets the absolute shit kicked out of him. Yes, and it's, yes. And it's simultaneously the best and extremely horniest thing that happens in the film for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you think? What do you think? I I love this sequence so much because Heinrich is ontologically correct. Like like in order for like like this is this is war games. The winning move is not to play. Everything in Mark's life is is based on this idea that there is kind of a, a supreme will that can be imposed over the order of the world and everything can be brought to heal, right? He is an agent of this process, right? And like, you don't quite get there as because that's your boring day job you're stuck with, right? You believe, you buy in, 
like and and to be encountered with like the the the, the acidic potential of something new Heinrich, who's just this openly hedonistic guy who's like, oh, yeah, I'm having sex with your wife. That's really it. And and who's just like, oh, I love his character. I love that line so much. His expression that they don't have to be cruel to each other and they can be open about this. It's so contrary to everything that Mark stands for. And for him to get his ass kicked by, by this very homosexually coded man is is fucking wonderful <laughs> um and they end up having this kind of like weird uh th- the relationship becomes more complicated uh later later heinrich begs uh mark to come pick him up at the local bar and meet him in the toilet yep. meet him in the toilets um like it's it's you know this idea of like you know people normally talk about like you read into the subtext to find the homosocial desire but like it's mm-hmm. it is not subtextual no no and especially when we when we have snake man mark back in the mix right because despite heinrich's protestations that like the thing that mark needs to do is just deal with it like when when heinrich encounters the reality of what's truly going on that he is only part of a matrushka doll of lovers leading back to the snake man of desire he can't cope yes right he reach he reaches a limit that that kind of shatters what he was expecting and what he was approaching and even he ultimately wants to recede back to this kind of patriarchal authority right the, the the kind of instantiation of a world order that would somehow center him over what's going on Yes, exactly. And but but at the same time, whilst all this is going on, like there is this there is this kind of like the the as I put it in the notes, the anxiety and violence of the cuckold. Because <laughs> uh, like Mark is Mark is just an an awful person for huge yes, swathes huge of this. Of shit. A huge piece of shit. Um so uh Sophie Lewis has written about this uh in their work on family abolition. I think Jules Gleason has talked about it. Um which is like the cuckold's dilemma, right? Which is mm-hmm. the the thing that like countless children have asked of their if of their fathers, you know, if it turned out you weren't really my dad, would you still love me? Mm-hmm. And the the answer is usually very revealing because a lot of the time it goes to no. Right, so there's a there's yeah. a there's a sort of violent anxiety, in the, in the in the heart of this kind of patriarchal system that seeks to control, um, and it's so funny that that's what Mark goes out sets out to try and do, and immediately yes. and just immediately gets the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> <laughs> but but of course the next the very next scene after that is a is a genuinely like awful like you know just just bone chilling bone chilling argument between mark and anna where he beats her viciously and mm-hmm. she staggers out of the house and into the street like with a mouth that just pours blood yeah and it's like yeah that's 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 exactly what what i mean when i'm talking about the kind of violence and anxiety that's at play in that in that sublimated triangle. The 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 tedi- I think it's the tedious structure that Heinrich calls it later. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that this the, the the violence here I think is incredibly important to highlight the difference in textures and qualities. Right, like like Mark Mark is the 
ridiculous embodiment of the violence of the oppressor right he, he's he's a gendered oppressor he's a geopolitical oppressor like his job is literally to go to the oppression oppression factory every day and stamp new oppression in, into the fabric of our society and like we we, we convert that with anna or we we um contrast that with anna rather and like she she has this kind of like you know like the 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 riot is the voice of the unheard you know like her her spontaneous violence her eruptions of anger and rage and despair it's the violence of the oppressed it's it might not always be right it might not always be justified or quote-unquote morally good but it is something that must be listened to right these are her only communicative tools because she's denied access to anything else well I I think that brings up maybe what I think is the key scene in the entire film, which is the yes. the, the subway scene. Um, so like the the double, there's a there's another doubling that happens here between uh, mm-hmm. in in Anna. So we have Anna, and yeah. there's also uh, what's what's the character's name? Uh, it's Helena, I think. Helen, yes. So uh, uh, Isabella Johnny plays both characters, and uh, Helen is uh, her son's school teacher who is the, this kind of like perfect, utterly passive kind of feminine presence. Uh, whereas uh, Anna is th- like this kind of cacophony of like outrage and pain. And I think this, bring, yeah. this brings up the, the, what I think is the key scene, which is the scene in the subway. Um, what, how, how would you describe it? What do you think about it? I mean, there there are one of the most beautiful things about art is that you can create something that is linguistically unbound that you can describe and try to communicate through. But it ultimately is conveying something that escapes the bounds of what I know in the English language. Yeah. Like the, this, this, this scene is unrelentingly not a lot. Not a lot of stuff gets under my skin anymore. You know, like you just watch a lot of horror movies and like. I've seen a lot of people get their chests ripped open. That's not going to get me anymore. You know, like I'll, I'll, I'll marvel at the effects, but I'm not, I'm not jumping when someone's brains blow out. But the, that scene where she's in the subway and having this, like, I mean, nothing short of like a psychic break is, is just so painful and cold and cruel. And I think the fact that it's happening in a subway is one of the most important things about that scene. The fact that it's not, it's in a place of transit. It's in a place of uncertainty and it's in a place that's exposed to the public. Yeah. There's no privacy to be had there. There's no shelter. Yeah. It, and the the very, the scene before, there's a moment where Anna's in a church staring at, mm-hmm. a, um, at a, uh, a, a crucifix, uh, staring at a crucifixion scene. And there's this kind of like yeah. ominous creaking as she sort of breaks down mm-hmm. and she breaks down in terror and she's then we next see her kind of like panicking fleeing through the subway with a bag of groceries before she kind of completely breaks down and ends up in like a in a puddle of like blood and milk and uh you know blood just pouring out of her body and it's yeah. the most it's like it's 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 such a deeply kind of traumatizing scene to watch and it's like where where there is the the horror of the scene where where is the horror of it and i think mm-hmm. it you're completely correct that it's about her vulnerability right the fact yeah. the fact that it's done so publicly and so kind mm-hmm. of like 
um, in a place where she's she's not kind of safe. The environment is completely on out of her control, and like the performance is just, uh, you, you know, it, it will it will fuck you up in the best way. <laughs> yeah, com- completely right, and like. There's, it's it's one of those things too. It's just so discursively rich. We could we could do a, an entire episode on that sequence alone, right? Or her her looking at like like I'm always fascinated with the scene with the crucifix. I, I think that's so interesting because that odd creaking, you know, like what what is a crucifix if not so much wood, right? Like what what is what is the realization in that moment if not the realizing that this kind of this manifestation of divinity. The, this this societal formulation of of church and religion is nothing more than a pale shadow cast by patriarchy and capital and like the the very systems that brought Anna to go seek some kind of refuge in the first place. It's like there's a there's a there, you know yeah there's a line from from Mark that I really like where he tells a story about the a dog a childhood dog that crawls yep. that crawls under the house to die. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think the God is under the house with the dog. Yeah. And it's like, what I really love about that is you can take it so many different ways. But the way that I I read the line, especially in the context of the film as a whole, is that in the midst, like, uh, everybody thinks, as the, thinks of the infinite as a kind of potentially benign thing or as a sort of yeah. positive thing. But r- religious experience is terrifying. Religious experience is yes. is horrifying. Uh, like, uh, and it has to be. Otherwise, why would anybody take it so, take it as seriously as they quite evidently do? And it's like if you think about uh, loss, grief, pain as intimations of the of the infinite. Uh, I, I I honestly think the line is very true, right? Like at the moment, at the moment mm-hmm. of death, right at, at the kind of limit experience of human subjectivity, in in that kind of space of horrifying negativity negation uh you know in the blood of it that's that's where you find if there is any kind of god that's where it might be i i, I totally agree right like it, 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 to overlay that to overlay that onto the film too like god is not to be found in the the, the empty and sanded church Right. That that's that's a shrine to some mortal man's opulence and nothing more. There's there's nothing divine to be had there. It's it's no it's less spiritual than a target. And you go, you you look at this movie, where where is this divine rupture happening? Where is the this encounter with like the the this this, this terrifying, like, you know, like numinous thing? It's in a subway. It's in some greasy hole under the earth designed to transit people back and forth. It's it's in this place of exposure and cold and coldness and aloneness. And that's that's where she goes to find it. She crawls under the house of society and finds God. Yeah. Or finds and what she finds is a kind of like there's there's what I find it super interesting is is how this film and how Isabella Johnny particularly portrays rage yes uh, and like there's a long tradition here you know barbara creed's famous book the monstrous feminine of how horror has seen uh the the anger of of women um but there's a really interesting yep. scene that's captured on like i think it's like on a home movie of her teaching dance 
Uh, and there's this moment where she kind of forces the body of a dancer, of a young dancer, into this posi- into a uh, position at the bar, and it's you can see the kind of physical strain and the pain and the fear on this dancer's mm. face, uh, and like she collapses at the end, uh, and she says to this dancer, you know, well now now she'll know that she can do it. Nobody ever did this, to, ever ever said that's me, right? Now she'll know that, like, there's a kind of like endless resource within her, of 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 fury, of absolute fury, yeah. which I think is so compellingly portrayed. No, I, I I totally agree, right? And like, what what happens if we stop viewing Anna? Because a very common reading of her character as is as someone who's gone insane, as as someone who's been made mad by by the events that they've just experienced, and like. What if we instead approached her as someone who just discovered something limitless? You know, what if they were they had to be broken and reformed in order to to wield this thing that they always were? You know, like she she becomes so bizarrely free after that sequence, so so unreadable and unreachable by by even the visual language of the camera. Right, she she becomes her own after that, even if the price of that was immense. This kind of immense pseudo birthing pain yeah there's this i think there's something super interesting about this idea of like thinking about like the collapse of subjectivity yeah like if you are if if your social conditions have have molded a certain kind of subject what happens if those conditions break you know like th- like this is mm-hmm. again this is a this is a very kind of classic fisherian point which is like not to deny the biochemical reality of, of mental health issues, but to kind of point out that they're not individualized um, yeah. and shouldn't mm-hmm. be. And and it's perfectly possible to have a kind of social model of why, the, as Fisher puts it, the cost of capitalism seems to be so very high without negating mm-hmm. the, the very real kind of bi- uh, biochemistry at work. But it's like... People, people who would go, oh well, she's just, she's just gone crazy, are actually missing the fact that really, yeah, this is a film that ends with the annihilation of all things, right? It isn't about her. Her response really is, uh, in in some ways, completely and utterly reasonable, right? It's about the yes. articulation of a kind of grief, of loss, of alienation, of justifiable anger, of pain and trauma, like none of that is the same thing as going oh well they're just crazy right those things shouldn't be equated Mm -hmm. so i think it's i think it's much more interesting to think about this in terms of like the dissolution and reconstitution of self rather than just like oh it's a it's a story about someone who loses their mind and and especially when we look at this in like the kind of geopolitical context of the film like like anna is the embodiment of the death rattle of the ussr Right. She, she is the crumbling iron curtain, right? She, she is this thing that was once an immense source of hope and potential that, that is now nothing but a, a grisly and sickened shadow of what it could have been that ultimately gets sold out for, for fast American fast food restaurants. Like it, it, it's, it's the becoming a mockery of oneself. And, and that, that, that kind of pain is just psychically unbearable you know and and to look at mark who's kind of the embodiment of the coming world order and and to to see him parading around as if he's making the sane rational actions 
the the only sane response is just total insanity and it's like i I sort of and you the great thing about this is it you can make these readings on so many different levels which is like oh yeah if you think of it solely in terms of a breakup and i don't think it negates the geopolitical reading which i completely agree with it's like of course when people go through very painful breakups we invent versions of the other person right the other person becomes Mm -hmm. a stranger you know, the you listen to, to to people talk about like a relationship that's ending, and it sounds as you go. Actually, I knew that person. That doesn't sound like them at all. But it's like no, they mm. they've created this other person. They've perfected this vision of something. You know, the the accretion of all of their kind of like pain and spite and anger gets coalesced basically into a into a simulacrum, into a double into a doppel yep. into a doppelganger of the person that you thought you knew. Hmm. Absolutely, that's so beautifully put. I must say, you are on fire today, good <laughs> sir. I tip, I, I tip my slimy snake hat to thee. <laughs> so, should should we uh, progress towards the end of this conversation by talking about the doppelgangers in in this film? By talking about the the duality and by by talking about Bob? Yeah, I I think. Try as you might, try as you might, even like the whole point of this film, I think in some ways is like innocence would don't, won't protect you. Yeah. I think that's part of it, right? This idea of like, oh, well, oh, they were just, what could they have known? It's like, well, that's, that isn't a defense really. Mm -hmm. The kind of this idea of like the individual fallout never stays individual, right? You, you, you know, if you, I mean, everyone knows this on a very kind of like mild level, right? You have friends who go through a breakup. Maybe there's one of those friends that you don't see as much anymore, right? The world, and you go, well, I wasn't involved, but this has affected me. But if you think Mm -hmm. about this as a film as in some ways allegorizing an apocalypse, uh, a world coming to an end, you know, there is no kind of like individualizing this. this. This affects all of us. Oh, ab, ab, absolutely. Like, like beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, like there's, oh my God, there's so many ways to read the, the end of this movie and the fact that both doppelgangers are, are the ones to live on. The, the both, both members of the adulterous affair come back together with the child in the end. And I think in a way we can not view them as doppelgangers. We, we can kind of set that aside for a second because so much of this movie is about becoming right with a capital b so much of this movie is about how the self transitions and changes you know like it's it's about you know like we have these barred subject moments all the time where we're you know exactly as you were saying earlier where where we go why did i say that that's not me i don't say things like that i don't do that like you you have those moments where you experience that schism but i think one of the great underlying terrors of that and also one of the great underlying potentials of that is that by and by that can become you that that other that was inside the self can become the self it can become the new core if we are to even accept that there is a stable core to detect within the mass of things that is you yeah completely completely and i think it's like this idea of like in some ways, it's very much like the the stereotype of the midlife crisis, right? You wake up one day, you look at yourself in the mirror, you, yeah. you don't recognize who you are, right? You seem yep. to, you seem to have become a different person, almost, and without 
really noticing that you become a different person. Um, yes, and yep, one hundred percent. So, how do you tie all of this to 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 Bob and to how this film ends? Oh, let's let's hop on. Uh, let's go off the rails on the crazy train of takes uh, to tie it back into the start of the episode. <laughs> There's a movie that I've seen a lot that I don't think I've ever talked about on the show. It's one of my most watched films, but it's Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments uh, with with uh, Charlton Heston playing Moses and our boy Vincent Price's Baca. Um and so there's something about the story of Moses that I reflect on a lot. I've been watching, I watch this movie every Easter, right? So since I was a kid. So I've seen this movie dozens of times at this point. Um, and, the, you know, like M- Moses goes through so much transformation through the course of the film, right? He, he literally has his, his very life force burnt up by contact with the divine, right? He, he becomes a pariah, a hero, a villain, a murderer, a savior, you know he is he is made to be transformed from from a mere person to an agent of greater transformation right a, a bringer of something utopian or at least the the coming stages of it but he himself cannot access that right as as an agent of that transformation he is barred from entering the final product of it because he would then bring something of the former world with him into the utopia, right? He would corrode it. His presence would negate the utopian. So he can never go into it, right? Like, and I think that there's something jarringly powerful about that that's going on at the end of possession. Uh, the, the utopian is horrifying from the perspective of the people who weren't born into it. Because we cannot fully contain its boundaries. We could never fully be part of it. Right, we're we're corrupted in a sense. We're antediluvian. Um, you know, like we, we can never go back to like the pre-flood, right? Like there is no Garden of Eden for us. You know, like like we we have the shrapnel of capital and patriarchy and homophobia and transphobia and you know, like just ableism and just everything just jutting from our very bones, right? We're zombies with shards of metal just sticking out of us. And we can we can weave these conditions for something better, but like Bob is Bob is the one that you know he's not not even necessarily the one that gets to pass into it because this is an intergenerational project. It's weaved through death, and like I think part of this movie is like whether whether you're going through something as trite yet horrific as as a divorce or a breakup can be, or you're working to to bring about a better society through through political action and activism or, or simple media commentary like the hardest thing in this world is to to be kind in the midst of great pain and to recognize that it, the it hurts more to withdraw from cycles of pain than it does to perpetuate them and as we transform ourselves, as this kind of barred self moves through these stages, like how how can we withdraw from the cycles in such a way that we can better bring about some kind of utopia, right? Like how can we engage with this? How about how about your thoughts? I, I I'm I'm gonna be honest, if we don't end the episode on that monologue, I'm gonna be so angry with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay well we're gonna we're gonna end the possession discourse by ash talking about moses for a while no i you gotta you gotta end it there that's that's just amazing perfect thank you thank you
We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.